Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with our international reporter, Zofia Zviglinska. How are you, Zofia? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Great to be on again. It's great to have you. So you're fresh off of covering London Fashion Week. We're going to briefly talk on this episode about some Louis Vuitton news, but then after that, we will spend the rest of the episode talking about London Fashion Week, what you saw there, what I saw from afar, and just continue off from where Jill and I were talking about New York Fashion Week last week. Next week, we will be talking Milan Fashion Week, and the week after that, we will do Paris Fashion Week. So this is the second of our four uh, special fashion month we can review episodes. Um, let's start with a little bit of Louis Vuitton news, though, just because I always like to talk on this podcast about people getting in trouble for stuff. Um, <laughs> Louis Vuitton got in a little bit of trouble this week with the Joan Mitchell Foundation, which they allege, the foundation, that the uh, the brand Louis Vuitton used three Joan Mitchell paintings in the background of an ad campaign, um, which they did not have permission to do, and which the foundation also said that LVMH asked them for permission to use those paintings several times and were denied and then just used them anyway. The paintings are held in an art museum that's owned by LVMH in Paris. And I think that's where the campaign was filmed as well. So I wonder if it was just that they were in the background already when they filmed it and now they were like, well, now we need permission and they didn't get it and just went with it anyway or something. But I wanted to bring it up because it does feel a little bit like some luxury brands play a little fast and loose with uh, things like this and try to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. I don't know. What do you, what do you think of that idea, Sophia? Am I being uncharitable to companies like Louis Vuitton? <laughs> I don't think that Louis Vuitton needs charity. And definitely, I think that, you know, in this particular case, you know, most artists have very kind of specific uses around their work. Um, and it does certainly kind of have an impact if an international kind of fashion house ends up using them. Um, obviously, that commercialization may not be something that they're agreeing to. And Obviously, if it's in the film, I think that that's the only difference where, you know, if you're already there in the location, you're filming it in the background. That does seem to be a bit of a gray area for me. I'm not sure how that works exactly with the campaign images, but my guess is that someone, um, you know, from a legal perspective would say that those are two different things um, and they needed to have permission for both and obviously just try to get away with one, which I think is a bit sneaky. Obviously, they're not the only company who have got into trouble this week. Nike are also in trouble over copyright um, fonts. Um, so I think it's mm. generally a kind of big brand thing where they end up using something they're not supposed to. Um, and as you said, ask for forgiveness rather than permission. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. So I think if I if I understand the agreement correctly with between LVMH and the Joan Mitchell Foundation, they have permission for the paintings to be in the museum and for to use them for educational purposes, but not for commercial or advertising purposes, um, mm. which you would say being in the background of an ad campaign definitely is a commercial yeah. purpose because it's literally commercial. It's funny about the Nike thing because I I missed that and it's and it kind of deflates what I was about to say, which is that I sort of feel like uh, luxury brands tend to do stuff like this a lot more. And I was going to say that you wouldn't see like a big non-luxury brand like Gap, you know, getting in trouble for <laughs> something like this because they're they're just like so much more buttoned up, I feel like. But now that you mentioned Nike, I'm like, well, I guess any kind of big brand um, is prone because they're just so huge. They're prone to just, you know, making you know mistakes like this and stuff. But yeah, I, I do wonder if it's uh, 
uh, an oversight thing or if they, I mean, because they asked for permission and were not given it and just went with it anyway. So like, I wonder if there's a little bit of arrogance there of like, well, we're LVMH, we can kind of do whatever we want, mm -hmm. you know? And like, didn't yeah. think anything would actually come of it. Um, I mean, I don't know how this is in Europe, but in the US, like you can be sued for basically anything. And if the person suing <laughs> you has enough money, like it, even if it's the most frivolous thing imaginable, like it can still be very ruinous, which is not a good thing that is, you know, that can happen here. But um, so I wonder if their thinking was, well, we'll just do it anyway. And, you know, we're one of the biggest companies in the world, you know, nobody can really challenge us. So I don't, that's the uncharitable reading. But like you said, they don't really <laughs> need charity. No, definitely not. I do think that, you know, with the the kind of growth of art and fashion kind of coming together, I think that that's becoming more of a thing nowadays. You know, Art Basel is just as much as a fashion scene now um, as it mm -hmm. is, you know, a art scene. I think there's going to be more kind of issues with how things are dealt. The culture is different. You know, the way that things are done, you know, on a commercial scale might not be quite the same. I think a lot of artists are still very kind of removed from the commercial perception. Obviously, all mm -hmm. of their... IP is is in the the art so it makes significant difference if you know someone else uses that for any particular reason yeah and I, I really sympathize with the idea of not wanting your art to be used for commercial purposes or marketing purposes mm. let's let's move on and talk a little bit about London Fashion Week um, so like I said Sophia I have some observations that I made from afar but just to start you were there. Tell me what you saw, um, you know, broadly. What was your what was your impression this year, maybe compared to last season? Um, I don't know. What comes to mind? How was it? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, for the British fashion industry, we've had a number of um, big kind of somber moments. And unfortunately, I guess this one also came with a bit of a, a somber kind of twist with um, Dame Vivienne Westwood passing away mm -hmm. in December. Um, a lot of the designers and the British Fashion Council um, kind of paid tribute at the beginning of London Fashion Week to her. I think that that kind of took away a lot of the collections um, into, you know, kind of more somber, maybe also just kind of more evening wear, dedicated things to her. Um, so there was a lot of kind of velvet, corsetry, structured, like tailoring, like all of the things that Vivienne Westwood was known for. And I think that the British fashion scene in particular has a way of always paying tributes to its stars. Um, mm. And then now, obviously, the the number of different shows that came about. Burberry was back on the schedule. Um, Christopher Kane also showed in London. And then there was a massive kind of Montclair exhibition towards the ends of Fashion Week. Um, but I think, you know, highlight collections um, from, you know, some of the more under the radar designers or maybe someone who's not quite as big as Burberry um, would be Delara, um, SS Daily, um, who had a performance by Sir Ian McKellen right at the start, um, mm. and Chet Lowe, who's kind of known for these like puckered dresses and tops, um, who kind of came out with a more evening focused collection as well um, in darker tones, autumn, winter tends to do that, but it definitely feels like it was more of a, a topic this season. Yeah, it, it's funny you mentioned um, Vivian Westwood because I think last season we, there was, you know, the queen had just died and there was a similar kind of somber, yeah. solemn mood. And I wonder if people were hoping that, okay, this season is when we're going to be all having fun and nice <laughs> and nobody notable is going to die right before. Um, and then it kind of happened again. And this time somebody much more connected to 
the fashion industry, the British fashion industry in particular. So it is kind of a, a sad coincidence that that has happened twice now. Um, anything, were, were any, we'll talk about Burberry in a second because I feel like that's a, that's a big one. But um, any other shows in particular that you saw that you liked or thought were notable? Any favorite moments or looks or anything? Yeah, I mean, for me, um, I think that, you know, as I said, Delara is a big one, um, Chetlo, Aluwalia as well. Um, some of these I didn't quite get to go to, but um, I saw all of the imagery in catwalks and it was an incredible show. A lot of focus on kind of bringing out new accessories. Um, there was, you know, sustainability is always such a big part of London Fashion Week and a lot of the younger designers in particular kind of focus on it. So Aluwalia actually specifically makes clothes purely out of um, secondhand items. Um, and this year she announced a partnership with Eon who do digital IDs. So now you can literally track from, you know, one secondhand item to a full kind of piece in her collection. Um, that's very, very cool because it means that, you know, there's a lot of designers who are eager to test how technology will kind of be integrated into fashion. Um, and they're not kind of afraid to do it even, you know, on a much kind of smaller scale compared to some of these giants. Yeah, definitely. Let, let's talk a little bit about Burberry. So um, Jill and I had talked on this podcast a little while ago. Uh, Daniel Lee is the new designer there um, coming from Bottega Veneta. Um, he had been appointed a little while ago, but this is the first time we're seeing any of his his designs. This is the first collection. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, we had seen his sort of updated branding for Burberry. Mm. And one of the things Jill and I talked about a lot was that it was a little bit more of a return to some of Burberry's like classic British kind of um, styling. Like the logo went from back to something a little more with like serifs and stuff and not that plain boring one that they had for a while. Yeah. They used the <laughs> the knight logo, like the charging knight on a horse, um, which they hadn't used before. All stuff that to me felt very kind of like, okay, maybe this is a return to tradition. But then the actual clothes came out on the runway and I don't think that they they there was no beige trench coats or sort of you know it was it was um not just a pure like return to form maybe maybe not re return to form but you know what i mean like going backwards to sign up to sort of like a, a classic burberry look they were much more modern looking um did you feel that as well that the and and do you think there's do you get any sense that he kind of was referencing previous burberry things or, or is it all kind of like looking forward um, I would say the majority of it does look forward. Um, I think that obviously having his kind of signature take on things from Bottega, um, again, accessories were a massive thing for him. And I think that it's more about kind of bringing in British grunge into like Burberry mm -hmm. and kind of focusing on what that looks like. Um, maybe bringing out a lot of standout pieces that could do well with buyers. Um, I think that a lot of buyers afterwards said that, you know, some of the pieces, especially like the coats and the shoes, um, were things that they were going to be picking up. So I think it's about making those connections between what is making Burberry profitable, but also what it can kind of make profitable in the future. So I guess like this collection felt more like, you know, this is what I can do. Um, and, you know, obviously there might be more takes from you know previous collections or from the trench coats in future collections but this is kind of more of a display of you know the range um and what burberry could be you know over the next couple of years yeah for sure and what was the what were the reactions like that you saw because there was a lot kind of riding on this first collection um 
Burberry, the, the new CEO, Jonathan Ackroyd, really wants the Daniel Lee era of Burberry to be a, um, you know, a huge growth kind of period for them. He's aiming for like, what, four or $5 billion in, in annual sales in the next couple yeah. of years. So clearly there's like a lot of pressure on Daniel Lee to, to make Burberry even bigger than it already is. And the first collection, I think everyone was kind of, you know, anticipating what he was going to do. Um, I feel like I saw a little bit mixed reactions and not everyone was mm. totally blown away. Um, what were, what was your personal feeling on it? And then what did you, what was the chatter around in, in London? Yeah, I mean, I personally, I liked it. I think that, you know, Burberry has such a kind of like signature that almost if you end up going back to that and playing with that too much, it, it can feel a little bit played out. Um, and I think at this point, you know, one thing that has to be mentioned is that if you don't know Burberry or slash if you don't already have a trench, um, then, you know, what are you doing? Like, essentially, this is the signature piece. Um, we're kind of looking at, you know, where the brand could go next. Um, and I think that that's the the big takeaway from this collection is to make Burberry kind of known for more than just the trench at the moment um, and kind of bring in a focus on, you know, some of the other pieces that could become signatures in the future as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask a sort of a broader question because I, whenever we, whenever I read about London Fashion Week and you cover it, I feel like this term always comes up uh, of cl- like quintessential British or classic British kind <laughs> of aesthetics or something. And I don't feel like that same language gets used about some of the other fashion weeks as much. People don't say, I, maybe they do, but I feel like I don't see as much um, this was a classic French show or something or a classic Italian. It feels like the other fashion weeks, people can just, you know, show whatever and brands from all over, you know, just bring whatever they have. But then at London Fashion Week, there's always like a talk about, is this classic British fashion or quintessential British, you know, whatever. Um, do you do you feel like that's true? Or do you feel like there's some sort of weird pressure on London sometimes to show like, maybe just because there's not as many big British luxury houses that are popular worldwide the way that there's tons of Italian and tons of French brands. And I'm not sure what it is exactly, but do you you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, something that is quintessentially British always kind of, I think it picks up better, you know, in the local scene and, you know, as a, as a country slash, you know, as a capital um, that has Savile Row, that has, you know, heritage tweed from like the northern parts of the UK. Like you're talking about a lot of heritage within clothing and kind of what that looks like. Um, there's all obviously with Burberry, there's all the military tie-ins um, from its kind of like past history. I think a lot of brands play into those like ideas um just to pull on that kind of heritage a little bit more i think that now that you know there's more emerging designers the idea of what is quintessentially british is changing um Mm. and i think that that is also something that you know you see in the collections you don't have just purely tweed or purely like trenches you you have new elements things coming in from Mm. other cultures that maybe, you know, previously wouldn't have been perceived as quintessentially British, but definitely so now. Yeah, and and it does feel like when people say quintessentially British, they're referring to this kind of 1950s or something or 60s <laughs> type of yeah, mod London or something. Yeah, We're, and especially given, like you said, uh, the UK has 
people living in it from all over the world. There's influences from the Indian mm -hmm. subcontinent, from various West African nations. There's there's tons of stuff that has been mixed into kind of like what is quintessential British fashion now that I feel like, again, when people use that term, I imagine, you know, George Smiley or something with the beige trench coat and big glasses or something, <laughs> you know, this, this look that's kind of not really around anymore. Yeah. The other thing I was going to bring in is that, you know, especially for brands like Burberry, like that idea of quintessential Britishness and their majority like customer group, which at the moment, um, you know, I would say is mostly still Chinese customers. I think it's, again, that idea that you want to evolve the brand. Um, they've had, you know, a good couple of like years already in that market. Um, majority of their kind of high net worth people have probably already got like a million trenches and they want to see what's coming next from the brand so I think tapping into that younger um, kind of look and something maybe a little bit more elegant something a little bit more niche um, might work for those customers as well yeah I was going to say one other thing which is that it's interesting to me that there's uh, London is is obviously a, you know a huge city and a, and a huge cultural center and mm. And I know so many British designers who who design for non-British brands. I was just talking to James Long, who's the designer for Iceberg, which is an Italian brand, but he's from London. Um, obviously, Daniel Lee was at Bottega Veneta, and he's he's British. Phoebe Philo was at Celine, and she's British. You know, there's British designers at all these French and Italian, um, you know, old luxury houses. There's really not a ton of brands, I think, that are quite on the same level as the various caring brands or the LVMH brands. Um, not sure exactly why that is. Like Burberry, I feel like, is maybe the biggest one. Um, but the actual talent is there. And there's, you know, like I said, there's British designers at all these other brands. So I'm not sure why there is not quite as many British, you know, big fashion houses that are globally as popular as like Gucci or Louis Vuitton or something. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of it is down to the fact that the British brands basically died out um, for various financial reasons over the course of the last 50 or 60 years. Um, brands like, you know, Aquascutum, who are also known for their outerwear, um, have basically completely disappeared, even though, again, very traditionally British. Um, all of the Savile Row brands are all relatively small, and I think they probably like to keep mm. it that way. But again, that potential for heritage extends further you know you've got brands like barber who again are very focused on outerwear but they haven't really um gone into high fashion the same way that burberry has i think there's a lot of potential there it's about more kind of focusing on investment um, and i think that's something that the bfc the british fashion council also called out this season um is the fact that you know with the various issues happening in the uk with brexit still affecting brands like that was a thing that came up multiple times in conversation, um, as mm -hmm. well as, you know, the general um, move away for international press and buyers from maybe New York to um, Milan and Paris, rather than kind of stickering mm -hmm. around and seeing what's in London. I think it's it's all about all of those things and kind of focusing on what makes British fashion scene um, kind of special um, and mm -hmm. investing in that yeah. Is, is there anything else you can tell me about your conversations about Brexit? Because I would love to hear such a confusing topic for an American. Like I, I get sort of the gist of how, how it affects things and, and that the UK is not part of the EU anymore. But um, what were some of the people you talked to saying about it? 
Yeah, so I mean, on the most kind of extreme end, um, people, especially designers, were saying that, you know, for deliveries to Europe and from Europe, whether that's kind of for production or sending things out to customers, can take almost as long as it does to send to the US. Um, so I think that, you know, when you're talking about the pace of what that connection was like before, you know, things were very easy between um, Europe and UK. You could send things across. You didn't have to pay an additional tax. Your customers didn't have to pay an additional tax for possibly shipping things from and to um, Europe. I think it just makes things a lot more difficult. Um, and again, like with the UK being a relatively small country in comparison, um, you usually do end up having to rely on, you know, international um, kind of production bits from everywhere. And any delays in that, um, you know, as a result of Brexit have gotten a lot bigger or more difficult. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's compounded also. I mean, we're a couple of years in, but various pandemic related stuff has become, you know, has been a huge headache for shipping and, you know, logistics yeah. as well. So. I'm sure that's all compounded by Brexit. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, there's other things too. There's um, the fact that the, the tax break thing for um, tourists has still not been lifted, like typically most mm. other countries still offer it. The UK stopped doing it for some reason um, and it still hasn't returned, which means that, you know, from a tourist level, there's probably um, a, a shortfall there for the amount of sales that brands can get from international tourists as well, as, you know, all of the countries started opening up last year and are probably going to be doing more so this year. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, I would definitely will keep an eye on this whole idea of like British fashion and what the BFC does to kind of um, keep expanding you know, what British fashion can do to to compete with the French and Italian brands, especially. One final thing mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, because you wrote about this, and I thought it was so interesting, about the presence of um, some new AI tools, chat GPT and other things that people were talking about at London Fashion Week. Can you tell us any more about that? Because I think that's so interesting. Yeah, of course. I mean, honestly, it's still very early days for both of those mm -hmm. technologies. I think AI has already been um, used by various fashion brands in different forms and probably under other names. But Chat GPD has been um, a big kind of thing right now where it's basically a chatbot service. Um, and I think in one of the shows for um, KWK by Kate Kwok, um, he worked with a musician to um, compose some soundtracks using chat gpt for the lyrics um, so i think there's a lot of different ways that it can be applied um, i think christopher kane used ai to create some of the prints in his collection um, so again like showing the different use cases for this on the catwalk there's a lot of ones off the catwalk as well and in online retail but i think for now you know all of these kind of buzzy um, use cases show the the possibilities of using it at the moment, it's it's still just a tool um, rather than anything else. Um, you know, any kind of explorations with it right now are probably quite early day things. And mm. I think you need to kind of take it um, as it comes over the next couple of months and becomes more of a thing. But with, with Microsoft's interest in it, um, with the company um, and ChatGPT, I think it's, it's definitely going to keep growing. And it actually might be one of those things that impacts fashion in a relatively quick way, like relatively fast, less, less than the metaverse at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I definitely think, um, you know, unlike some of the metaverse stuff, I can at least immediately see a use case where 
Yeah. Still to this day, some Web3 stuff, like, I'm like, but what does it do? You know, I, st- <laughs> like, I still kind of don't fully get that. But yeah, the, like you said, these a lot of these tools are very new. Um, and so it seems like a, the, a lot of the uses of it are kind of just around the sidelines, um, mm-hmm. you know, around the edges, different you know, little tests and stuff. So we'll we'll definitely talk about this and I'm sure write about it more um, on Glossy in the future. But it's it's interesting to see even now, you know, it's only been really widely available for a month or two and already at London Fashion Week, you can kind of hear people talking about it. Um, cool. I think that's all the time we have. But Sophia, thank you so much for joining us and reporting from London Fashion Week. Um, it's great to have you there on the ground instead of just Jill and I like speculating. I wonder what they're doing over there. <laughs> For those of you listening, um, don't forget to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you're listening to this. That really helps us out a lot. And don't forget to subscribe to the Glossy Podcast because you'll hear the Week in Review every Friday with me and Sophia, sometimes me and Jill, sometimes me and other people from the Glossy team. And every Wednesday, Jill or I will interview some cool, interesting person from the fashion industry. Until then, thank you again, Sophia, and thanks for listening. 